Choice is proudly brought to you by Wordsworth Books. It's the first Monday of the month, so it's Book Choice on Fine Music Radio 101.3, various other frequencies which you'll find on our web www.fmr.co.za. I'm Gory Bose Taylor, and thank you for joining us. This warm hearted hour, Andrew Marshbanks, Wordsworth Books, chooses the best of October fiction and non-fiction for you. We chat to five-star, multi-award winning writer and filmmaker Sylvia Vollenhoeven about her revealing and richly rewarding memoir The Keeper of the Cum Ancestral Longing and Belonging of a Busmankind. Philippa Schaefitz, with great gusto, tucks into J.B. Oliver's Superfood Family Classics. While, rather more quietly, Philip Todris discusses the quirky Hidden Johannesburg with author Paul Duncan. Cindy Moritz mangles our nerve ends with The Black Widow by prolific espionage and thriller writer Daniel Silva. Jay Heal cheerfully looks at the concept of a children's book laureate, while Beverly Ross Muller brightens America's bleak political scene with Presidential Wit and Wisdom, 250 Classic Quotes from America's Greatest Leaders, and it's edited by Charlotte Lee Gross. Shingai Durangwa, too, found political fun in Fred Kamalo's entertaining Zupta's Must Fall. Finally, the review you've been waiting for, for J.M. Kutzi's The School Days of Jesus. And needless to say, Jesus doesn't come into it. Do stay with us. There's an easy-peasy competition question coming up to win one of two 200 Rand Wordsworth Books vouchers or a copy of Sylvia Vodenhofen's mesmerising memoir, The Keeper of the Cum. Andrew Marshbanks, October's Best Fiction and Non-Fiction. Hi, thanks, Gory. Well, we've had an exciting past week, I must tell you with this new secret book that was held back from publication until right before the very first last second that we heard what the book was all about. And this, of course, is the book called Rogue, the inside story of SARS, the elite crime-busting unit by Johann von Loggerenberg. Well, I'm halfway through the book, and let me tell you, it's a real page-turner. It's one of those books that you read and you're just too afraid to carry on reading because it's also dreadful. Um, uh, He goes into great detail about how the so-called rogue unit was constructed, how it was everyone involved in the construction, right from the finance minister, which was Trevor Manuel, to Pravin Gordon at the time, and how the lawyers were all involved. So the whole thing was totally above board because they wanted to get inside the skin of the crime units that were fleecing the tax department. And he goes from Abalone, uh, um, uh, Perlman poaching, right the way through to furniture stores who weren't paying VAT or claiming VAT, because there was a huge amount of VAT trans-shipping and people claiming VAT where they didn't have to, and they needed a unit to get under the skin of these things. 
And it's just absolutely fascinating. It really is. And what I found really mind-blowing in this whole story is the role that the Sunday Times played in it, which is really quite appalling, really quite appalling. They just repeated all the news that they were being fed, put it onto the front page without really checking any facts, without doing anything, and it caused a whole the whole thing to explode. So that is a book really worth having. It's 270 Rand from Jonathan Ball. As you know, Jonathan Ball does some very brave publishing, and this is very brave. That's Rogue, the inside story of SARS, the elite crime-busting unit. And while I'm talking about that, I've also got to talk about the book by General Boyson. Now, he's also been hounded for telling the truth, and he has spoken to Jessica Pickford on this. He traces his rise to power as the head of the Hawks and then the subsequent charges of corruption against the top players of the National Prosecuting Authority, etc. This is his time in Natal, where he caught the ire of the top crime bosses in the area. And so they got rid of him, or tried to get rid of him, but he's a fighter. These are fascinating books. They really are. They are symptomatic of the times we live in and the times we wish we didn't live in. Okay, so that's Blood on Your Hands, General Johan Boysen, and that is 285 Rand. Well, going to someone, one of our favorite people of all time, Marianne Tam has written a biography. Now, as you can expect from a person like Marianne, it's beautifully written. It's absolutely fascinating from beginning to end. Her story, how she was brought up, her parents coming out as a lesbian, the family life, the children, etc., I just found it wonderful. She is a brilliant writer. You'll find yourself absorbed from beginning to end. It's got a wonderful title, Hitler, Favut, Mandela and Me, a memoir of sorts by Marianne Tam. A great book, 280 Rand, well worth reading. And then another local author who I have reviewed a lot of his books before. He's someone that you never get bored of. It's Don Pinnock. He wrote that marvelous book called Cape Crime. But this is The Musings of a Naturalist. This is someone who has an extremely active mind like Don, who just walks along and, and you can just tell his mind is churning about things. What is an atom? What, why is the sun there? What is this plant? Etc., etc. He goes far deeper into these things. And he's written a book and he's collected all these musings. It reminds me a lot of Bill Bryson. His writing is very amusing, approachable. It's a very Bill Bryson-ish style. And I would say that if you want to give a 14-year-old boy anything that will pique his interest, or a 14-year-old girl with an interest in the world around them, this is the book to give them. 240 Rand, it's called As Wild As It Gets, Wanderings of a Bemused Naturalist by Don Pinnock. And I'm just going to mention a couple of novels that have just come out. You can't believe it, but there is a new Jilly Cooper. It's called Mount, and it carries on from the Rupert Campbell Black character in her other books. Hilariously funny. She writes with tongue-in-cheek, the English upper class at the horsey set, and her stuff is always very readable. Right from the beginning, she's written wonderful books, and it's called Mount by Jilly Cooper. The other book I must mention is Ian McEwan's got a new book out called Nutshell. Every book that he writes is a masterpiece, and this is no, no different. 
It's 385 Rand. It's a hardcover, very classy hardcover. And finally, just got to mention Philippa Gregory's new books come out, Three Sisters, Three Queens. This is the eighth novel in her Plantagenet Tudor I don't know how many books, well, eight now. I don't know how many books there are going to be, but her books are wonderful, and anyone who reads them adores them. Thanks a lot. Sorry for cramming so much in. Cheers. Sylvia Vollenhofen, we're going to chat about your mesmerizing and treasurable memoir. It's called The Keeper of the Cum, Ancestral Longing and Belonging of a Busmankind. It's a spiritual, political, skillful, entirely relevant, tenderly rendered and often very funny autobiography. It's African mysticism meets Madiba magic meets your stellar media career. How did your ancestral longing manifest and how was it resolved? In short, um, I would never have thought that something like this would happen to me because of the kind of background that I come from. But I became very ill, and after having consulted, you know, regular mainstream medical experts and spending a lot of money on them, I was more or less forced to look for alternative options, and I went to see a sangoma and realized that, that all the symptoms I was suffering wasn't just a usual illness and very reluctantly opened up my mind to maybe there was something else at play. Uh, and the Sangoma strongly suggested that it was an ancestral calling and that I had to look at my writing and that I had to write a story that's been sitting with me. And that's how it started. Now, that Sangoma, as it happens, was a white Sangoma, wasn't it? Neil that's somebody. right, Neil okay. Campbell. And... He gave a wonderful sentence that you quote in your book, which is, a story is medicine for a person. Absolutely. That really stuck with me because at a time when I was so ill, I could hardly walk or work and just be in bed half of the time. I would never have seen stories like that. And I really underestimated how magical and healing stories can be. And following his advice, I discovered in a very personal way that stories have tremendous power to heal. And of course, they have tremendous power to harm as well. And your story goes right back, and you're going to do the clicks because I can't. <laughs> your story goes right back to Cabo. That's right, Cabo. And do give me the other one, his son-in-law or his grandson, which is an impossible name to... Can you remember who it is? Ah, he's the, the one they used to call Klein, Klein Yankee. Yes. Cabo was known to the colonials as Yankee Turin, Turin because of his magical powers. And then his, his son-in-law was known as Klein Yankee, which is just the easiest part. Okay, that. and you discovered your ancestral belonging to Cabo, which was, in fact, your childhood was spent in Weinberg. We're going to get on to your grandmother, but your childhood was spent in Weinberg, which is where William Bleak and Lucy Lloyd recorded all Cabo's stories. Yes, they had a house in Mowbray, close to oh, Weinberg, Mowbray. and they went to the Breakwater Prison where a lot of indigenous people were incarcerated at the time for the made-up charge of stock theft because people were just taking what belonged to them on the land and with the incursion of the settlers and their pastoral way of life, they helped themselves to the stock because their land had been taken away and they could no longer hunt. And so an inordinate number of people were locked up in the Breakwater Prison and they built Table Bay Harbour 
But William Bleek, who was a German philologist, a linguist, and his sister-in-law, Lucy Lloyd, were looking for people to help them to compile a language of the Klum language, which was a dictionary, rather, of the Klum language, which was dying out at the time. And they found Klabo and a whole group of men that worked with Klabo at the time who were part of what they called the Turin Gang. They were a group of guerrilla fighters resisting the colonials. Some of the original guerrilla fighters way before the ANC was even thought of in South Africa. And they found Klabo and his men of the Turin Gang, took them to their home in Mowbray, and in the beginning had a plan to just compile a dictionary of this dying language. But in the end, we now have an archive at the University of Cape Town as a result of about 12,000 pages of rich, rich history of what it was like at the time in the hinterland amongst the Khoisan people. And most of it handwritten, I gather. Siva, Madiba Magic, David Dimbleby and the Panorama team came out here to South Africa to make a BBC documentary on Nelson Mandela. Uh, and Mr Mandela said, only if Sylvia is a South African producer. You obviously had a warm relationship with Nelson Mandela. Tell us about that plane ride with Madiba and Winnie when you got yourself into first class next to them. <laughs> well, right from the start, you know, the, the day he was released, we were all there. And I was part of a group of journalists who started following him around back to Soweto and then on his first trips overseas. And so right from the start, we developed a relationship because at his home in Orlando, just after he'd been released from jail, I stood around wanting him to sign my notebook and I was a little bit hesitant to ask him. And he actually left the team of journalists he was standing with, came over to me and said, I've been reading all your stuff in jail and I really like what you've been writing. And we started a conversation that day that we just picked up on over the years and of course I travelled with him and his first trip overseas when he left Africa was to go to Sweden and I was a correspondent for the main Swedish newspaper at the time and I remember you know sort of doing a lot of things to manoeuvre my way into first class. My seat was literally right next to Nelson and Winnie Mandela and it was like really like a dream waking up the next morning thinking I've just slipped next to Madiba. <laughs> <laughs> and Sylvia, very quickly, as always, we're running out of time. I'm talking about your childhood in Wabagalia, and your childhood, as you tell it, is funny, it's tender, it's moving, and you grew up really with your grandmother, Sophie Peterson, who has, in a way, never left you. Oh, absolutely. My grandmother was very gifted as a psychic or a shaman, which is, you know, the closest English words. But she didn't see a distinction between the physical and the non-physical world. So, so I grew up very comfortable in different worlds, literally growing up in the households of white people. I didn't even know that I wasn't white until I was about six and I had to go to a different school. And she was a huge influence because of the ease with which she navigated different kinds of reality. We've been talking to Sylvia Vollenhofen and she is the author of The Keeper of the Kum, Ancestral Longing and Belonging of a Busman Kind. And uh, Sylvia and I were colleagues at the Cape Argus all those years ago and she went on, as, as you heard, to become a five-star award-winning journo and filmmaker and I went on to become a bad-tempered old woman. Philippa Schaefitz, fascinatingly, you've tucked into Jamie Oliver's Superfood Family Classics. That's the name.
Superfood Family Classics by Jamie Oliver, published by Michael Joseph, sells for 395 rand. Who can resist Jamie Oliver? Always ahead with bright ideas and delicious food that's blissfully doable. The book follows a successful, aren't they all, everyday superfood. But this one focuses on the family. Healthy versions of comfort dishes, thoroughly tested and chosen with something to please the whole family, from toddler to teenager, mom and dad. Their breakfasts, four-way boiled eggs, British, Indian, Mexican and Spanish. Easy enough, but different. And plenty of ideas for Avo on rye toast. Here we grew up with Avo on toast, but suddenly it's a new hit in the north. He mentions that in the UK, avocados are today more popular than oranges. Great quick fixes, from Japanese miso stew to pasta with pesto. His pies are always good. A shepherd's pie, with lamb and a sweet potato and sweet topping. Or a salmon and prawn fish pie, with feta and a mixed potato pudding. Sweet potato and regular. Seriously good salads. Real meals. A lovely assortment of curries, perhaps my favourite section, though I've always found Jamie's tray bakes so smart, all assembled ahead, then simply baked to serve out the oven. The chicken and chorizo bake, peppers, sweet potatoes and spuds is a definite, and I must try the Brazilian fish bake, peppers, chilies, tomatoes and paprika, a good collection of pastas and risottos. I love the veggie bolognese and the spaghetti cake with aubergine and tomato, good soups, Peruvian sweet potato soup, corn, peppers, chicken and quinoa, four variations of minestrone, one for each season. Jamie at his cleverest best in a section on kitchen hacks, tricks and shortcuts to batch bake and stay ahead proper chicken nuggets that freeze well, and jumbo fish fingers, batch minced meat ragu, or a seven veg tomato sauce, super quick batch pesto, a weekly poached chicken, use the meat for salad and sandwiches, freeze a flavorsome stock, homemade curry paste to freeze in egg boxes and take out one at a time as needed, stewed citrusy fruits or fruit lollies, both naturally sweet, are the only two desserts on offer, but with lots of variations to try. Finally, an important informative section on Jamie's superfood philosophy, which stresses the balanced plate. It's a pleasant enough book, easy to follow, with lots of picks, all taken by the chef himself, should he? Jamie has dedicated the book to my lovely wife, Jules, and she appears side by side with him a lot of the way. All sounds delicious. And here's a pre-recorded chat with Philip Todras and the brilliantly stylish Paul Duncan about Paul's book, Hidden Johannesburg. Hidden Johannesburg. It's written by Paul Duncan, photography by Alain Proust, and is published by Streck Lifestyle. Well, Paul, you've been busy again finding and discovering. I mean, it wasn't enough that you did Cape Town. You're now discovering Johannesburg. I have, yes. And what has been hidden that we don't know about? Well, it grew out of the, Johannes- out of the Cape Town book. 
and downtown there are the, there are banks and churches, cathedrals, synagogues, old trading houses, buildings which are locked, uh, which buildings which are waiting for a new life. Some of them are getting a new life, and I thought it was time to go inside them, photograph them, and see what we still have. Rediscover Johannesburg, as it were. Absolutely, So yeah. did you focus essentially on downtown Johannesburg and the peripheries? Yes, because I mean, the oldest buildings in Johannesburg are in Bromfontein, Dorenfontein, and all those, all those old neighborhoods, which are quite kind of run down at the moment. But surprisingly, the microcosm of old Johannesburg is still there and written in its buildings. And I thought it was time to illustrate them. And you were brave enough to walk the streets and find those details and all those things that excite you. I was, and I walked around with my laptop in my backpack, and, you know, I wasn't threatened, I didn't feel threatened, you know, people helped me, and it was amazing, and I recommend it to anybody, actually. Walking is a very different way of seeing a city. Mm, Actually, some of the gems that you discovered, I mean, was it more difficult than Cape Town in some ways? Well, I'm not a Johannesburger. I'm from Cape Town, so I know what lies inside Cape Town, but I didn't really know much about Johannesburg other than what I'd read. And I was surprised to find amazing art in the Catholic Cathedral. The architecture of old great synagogue is extraordinary. I discovered a church in Victory Park that my father had actually designed in the 60s, and I knew nothing about it. And well, it was quite a brutal sort of structure, but, but interesting. And then you had this wonderful almost etchings in terms of the mural work. Which yes, the lemon squeezer in Victory Park, St. Yes. Charles Borromeo. But that's the least of it. I mean, there are all those wonderful Herbert Baker houses, which are pretty much in good condition. I think a Herbert Baker book and getting around Johannesburg, just doing that would be quite something to do. I think so. I think it's been done to a degree. It's all those, those old trading houses, those mercantile buildings downtown, which I think needs some TLC. I think the only one that's still occupied is the Anglo-American one, and it's in very good condition. Many of the others aren't. And you hear about extraordinary murals by extraordinary painters and Eduardo Villa sculptures on facades and things. Uh, one little critique I'm going to have is some of the beautiful paintings that were seen in the book, you don't acknowledge the artists, naughty man. We'll, we'll go there another time. Please. Anyway. <laughs> point them out to me. I want to know which they Absolutely. are. And what about some of those gems that are really decaying and some of the extraordinary things you saw there, like the Park Station? Well, Park Station was the most extraordinary find. It's actually derelict, and I've heard it's due for demolition, strangely and oddly because one of the main public rooms inside of it is lined with ceramic studio tiles and the ceramic studio was the precursor of Linware, the Linware studio and there it is. It's not in great condition but it's entirely intact and it, it should be a national monument. I find it very odd that it's that it's in such a state and the, the old halls inside that station, they look like the baths of Caracalla in Rome and they're extraordinarily well built. And can't they be repurposed in some well, way that would make more sense? Well, you would have thought so, but they built a new station up above it or beside it or something, and I'm not certain what the future is, but I suspect it's going to be demolished. And so that's why I put the, the main dining hall onto the front cover of the book. It's a very, very handsome building. Other surprise that you might want to just reveal to us? One or two little secrets? The Great Synagogue. It was designed by a man called Kallenbach, who was reputedly um, Gandhi's lover, and they lived together in two rondavels in orchards, which are still there, which, is in the, which are in the book. Then the Greek Orthodox Cathedral, which is in extremely good condition, still used, also by Kallenbach. Well, um, you're just giving us lots of reasons for buying a book, and a very handsome book too, which thank is you. a wonderful thing to put in a Christmas stocking, although it might weigh down that Christmas stocking somewhat. I've been talking to Paul Duncan about the very elegant hidden Johannesburg, which he certainly has uncovered for us with beautiful photographs by Elaine Post. Cindy Moritz, intriguingly, Daniel Silver's The Black Widow. 
I've long wanted to read the much-celebrated Daniel Silver, and when his latest novel, The Black Widow, was published and seemed so topical, I jumped at the opportunity. Topical because it opens with an ISIS attack on a Jewish institution in the Marais district of Paris. Silver started to write the book after the terrorist attacks on a magazine office and kosher supermarket there at the start of 2015, and it was almost complete before the more recent Bataclan Theatre massacre in the same city. Soon after that, in real life again, ISIS released a video threatening to strike America at its heart, Washington, D.C., Silver, who was already well into writing this work of fiction and had the plot worked out, considered setting the book aside and writing something else, but decided to finish it and say something about ISIS along the way. His story so closely resembles the current state of affairs, it could be seen as a kind of warning. As an aside, before becoming a full-time author, Daniel Silver worked as a journalist and was Middle East correspondent in Cairo and the Persian Gulf in the 1980s. He returned to Washington to work for CNN and left the network in 1997 after publishing his first book. In this, his 16th novel, we again meet Israeli art restorer and spy Gabriel Alon, who is believed to be dead and happy to go along with the story. This character was introduced in Silver's fourth novel. He's alive and well, married to Kiara and father to twin babies. He's about to complete a major art restoration and has been offered the top job at Israel's secret intelligence service known as The Office. However, when a bomb planted by terrorists in Paris kills his close friend and the French authorities reach out for assistance to find and eliminate the man responsible, he must jump into action. To infiltrate the terror network, he recruits a French-born Israeli doctor, the brave and beautiful Natalie Mizrahi, to join the office. Fluent in French and Arabic, she transforms into a Palestinian Arab militant who has been radicalized after the death of her lover and is seeking revenge. This is what's known in the world of terror as a black widow. Natalie must undergo intense training and only once she's fully comfortable being Dr. Leila Khadawi, she moves to live and work in a remote northern Paris suburb at the newly opened Clinique Jacques Chirac. According to plan, Natalie as Leila is soon recruited to train in Syria with ISIS. She fulfills her goal of meeting the terror boss who is known as Saladin, an ex-Iraqi intelligence officer. She is subsequently sent on a mission about which she knows little, other than it entails entering the United States on a false passport. Silver gives the reader a short history lesson with the parallel story of the real Saladin, now a symbol of Arab nationalism. He was a Sunni Muslim of Kurdish origin and the first sultan of Egypt and Syria in the 12th century. What may not be widely known is that he retained the services of a Jewish physician, Maimonides, something to which the character Saladin in this novel refers. My key takeaway from the story is something that the author inserted neatly into the narrative. Confronted about his reported death, Gabriel Alon asserts that he's very much alive. He says... You mustn't believe everything you read in the newspapers. You're about to find out that about 70% of history is classified, and difficult things are almost always accomplished entirely in secret. I found this foray into the world of spying and international intelligence thrilling and riveting, and I know I'm not the only one. I confess I'm now a Daniel Silver fan and will be seeking out his earlier work for my fix of the genre. 
J. Hill, the persuasive case for a children's book laureate. Near the end of the 20th century, a memorable conversation took place. Ted Hughes, who was the official poet laureate at the time, was chatting to the children's author Michael Morpurgo, who, by the way, wrote the book War Horse, which came so dramatically to our theatres last year. If we honour poetry with a poet laureate, they said, why not a similar distinction for children's literature? And so the idea of a children's laureate was born. This unique distinction, honouring individuals who have made a significant and lasting contribution to the world of children's books, is now sponsored by Waterstones, the bookshop people, and managed by Book Trust. The first ever children's laureate was the illustrator Quentin Blake, probably best known for his pictures in the Roald Dahl stories. From 1999 until 2001, Quentin Blake toured Britain, visiting schools, giving talks and demonstrations, and generally stirring up increased interest in the world of books for young readers. And since then, for two-year periods, the laureates have been Anne Fine, Michael Morpurgo himself, Jacqueline Wilson, Michael Rosen, poet extraordinary, Anthony Brown, artist extraordinary, picture book writer Julia Donaldson, Mallory Blackman, and the present children's laureate, illustrator Chris Riddle. Not long ago, Julia Donaldson visited South Africa. She does more than just talk about books, she puts the idea on stage. So it's not surprising that her picture books create a sort of performance when they're read aloud. She's best known for her creation, with illustrator Axel Scheffler, of the Gruffalo, a fearsome monster which has become beloved by all. Julia's latest picture book is The Detective Dog, published by Macmillan. It's a bouncing story in verse about Detective Dog Nell, who has an an erring nose for lost items. Nell shared her house with a person called Peter, a very nice child, though he could have been neater. Julia's rippling text, with Sarah Ogilvie's whiffling pictures, follow a delightful piece of detection. All the books have been stolen from Peter's local library. Disaster! But Detective Dog Nell solves the mystery, and the young reader or listener ends up amid an adoration of libraries. A hugely enjoyable book, worthy of a children's laureate, and with utterly huggable pictures. Beverly Rosemuller, with a titan clash between Clinton and Trump, we need some political cheering. Do you also feel that you can't wait for this year's presidential campaign in the United States to end? How ugly it is. Yet not so long ago, the ability to speak with intelligence, wit and wisdom, to proffer a neat quip, these were rhetorical skills that were highly prized and an indication of a politician's quickness and firmness of mind. I adore Franklin B. Roosevelt's snappy advice. Be sincere, be brief, be seated. And don't we all just long for some of our local windbags to take that advice?
The remarkably tall, gaunt Abraham Lincoln had quite a sense of humor. When a member of the audience shouted that he was two-faced, he quipped, if I had another face, do you think I would wear this one? And he could also craft a fine insult. He can compress the most words into the smallest ideas better than any man I have ever met. Also, better to remain silent and be thought of all than to speak out and remove all doubt. Honest Abe, as Lincoln was called, had a powerful mind. His Gettysburg Address in 1863 was just a two-minute speech. He wasn't really even supposed to be there as a speaker. But it has become immortal. Beginning fourscore and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Are you listening, Donald Trump? Lincoln also liked to say that whenever I hear anyone arguing for slavery, I feel a strong impulse to see it tried out on him personally. Ronald Reagan had a reputation as a kind of lazy president, which he joked about. I have left orders to be awakened at any time in case of a national emergency, he said, even if I'm in a cabinet meeting. And he also said, it's true, hard work, never killed anybody, but I figure, why take the chance? George W. Bush, not the brightest spark, once said that I have opinions of my own, strong opinions, but I don't always agree with them. John F. Kennedy joked that all mothers want their sons to grow up to be president, but they don't want them to become politicians in the process. He added that when we got into office, the thing that surprised me the most was to find that things were just as bad as we'd been saying they were. Bill Clinton echoed this feeling. Being president is like running a cemetery. You've got a lot of people under you, and nobody's listening. Herbert Hoover, the 31st president, remembered his humble beginnings as an orphan and manual labor and donated all of his presidential salary to charity, adding that about the time we think we can make ends meet, somebody moves the ends. I think we can all sympathize with that. While following the latest dreary political debacle, it may be worth recalling the words of one of America's founding fathers and third president, Thomas Jefferson. The care of human life and happiness, and not their destruction, is the first and only legitimate object of good government. He wrote that in 1809. How nice it would be if all heads of state today remembered those wise words. This is an interesting little book, and one of the few times I can genuinely say it contains something for everyone. It lists the 44 presidents to date with a very brief biography, some of them a little inadequate. I would have thought it significant to note that Lincoln, the 16th president who ended slavery, was assassinated in 1865, just four years after taking office. How we miss his wit and wisdom. Well, some good humour there, and uh, Shingai Durangwe, more light-hearted looks at a political scene. This time it's ours. Fred Kumalo's Zuptas Must Fall and Other Rants is a notable addition to the growing, albeit slowly, line of non-fiction collections to have emerged in South Africa. As I practically more or less pages, I find myself marvelling at Kumalo's ability to shift seamlessly among genres, comedy, tragedy, drama, horror, fiction and non-fiction all feature here. 
Zupdes Must Fall is a collection of published essays, recent and new, and other rants meshed together to present a dynamic, thoughtful, and altogether coherent body of work. The book is interspersed with Facebook posts that must be some of the most well-written and most fascinating I've read. In Alone Among the Zulus, an English woman's experience, Kumalo shares Victorian author Catherine Barter's stunning letter denouncing the Zulu language. I would gladly see it die out in Natal, she writes derisively. Before telling of an experience in which she had to switch to Zulu in a discussion with the Norwegian woman because it was the only language they both felt at home with. Strange that a barbarous African dialect should form the only available means of communication between two European women, she says. Another Facebook post in which Kumalo describes his mom swelling with pride like a fed cook made of self-raising flour after purchasing a brand new kitchen scheme just before Christmas is hilarious in the way it speaks to the common black experience. His mother's bathing in the envious glares from neighbors comes to a premature end when, early in the new year, he sees her hiding from the bill collector to avoid her furniture being repossessed because of missed payments. In an open letter from a goat, a strange passage in which a particularly articulate goat addresses black people, Kumalo flexes his storytelling muscle. The goat laments the arrival of the festive season, when goats are slaughtered for cultural purposes and shares his tactic for avoiding the knife. When a potential buyer accompanied by my owner approaches, I simply collapse on the ground and start foaming in the mouth, twitching my legs. The would-be customer, startled, then backs away as if he's seen a ghost and proclaims, this one has been bewitched. It'll bring bad luck to my house. Kumalo's frequent and skillful use of true material to tell his stories is an impressive hallmark of this book. Easily distracted readers, like I am, will appreciate how most of the chapters are about three to four pages long. In the title chapter, Zuptas Must Fall, Kumalo provides a layered background on the Guptas and their wide-ranging influence in South African politics. He cleverly describes their arrival in 1993 as a quest to claim their share of the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. It's a rich and well-researched exploration of this wealthy family's history and political ties. It's not long before Kumalo's humor re-emerges. In Ingenuity Nigerian Style, he tells a story about a friend being confronted by an intruder in Lagos, Nigeria. In Johannesburg, the mugger would have been pointing a gun at my friend, but this was Lagos. In his gloved hand, the man held a fistful of excrement, which he was getting ready to plaster all over my friend's face. Zuptas Must Fall makes jolting leaps from silly tales, like seeing eccentric Somizim Songo at the gym, dressed in a skimpy little number that looks like a panty, to a meaningful discussion on social political issues, such as the burden of black tax. There are many fascinating passages that explore pop culture, politics, and trending topics, as well as random rants that, as far as I can tell, serve no other purpose but to amuse. Despite the array of topics discussed in these rants, Kumalo always feels in command, never losing or lacking depth in his commentary. With pieces carried by numerous titles, an MA in creative writing from this university, and several books to his name, it is hardly surprising that Kumalo's writing comes across as effortless and poignant. Vanessa Levenstein. Not much about Jesus in J.M. Kutzi's The School Days of Jesus. Long-listed for the Man Booker Prize 2016, The School Days of Jesus by J.M. Kutzia has left readers polarized. The work has the Kutzia Surreal stamp. The book is the second part of an intended trilogy, the first novel being The Childhood of Jesus.
Now, for a start, the novel is not about Jesus. It is about a middle-aged man named Simon, who crosses the sea and leaves behind his past life and his memories. He meets a young boy named David on the boat. He too has no memory about his former life. Simon undertakes the role of guardian and is intent on finding David a mother. Refugees in a dystopian, going as utopian society, Simon assigns a woman named Ines to be David's mother. The second book begins where the first book ended. Simon, Ines, and David are on the run from the school authorities as they attempt to find a place where the precocious David can be suitably educated. David enters the Academy of Dance, where he is taught by the enigmatic Anna Magdalena and her unsettling, somewhat creepy admirer Dimitri. Simon may well be the benevolent Joseph. Whether Ines represents the Virgin Mother is unlikely, but in fact, who knows? The major character flaw is the child David. Six-year-olds are, by their very nature, inquisitive and enterprising. This does not make them messianic. We know Kutzia was influenced by Brecht, who wanted his audience to think as opposed to feel. Now, there's a coldness and somberness to this book, and it leaves one, the reader, feeling alienated. Does this sublimate the emotional response with an intellectual one, or does it just leave one feeling confused? The School Days of Jesus philosophizes about the nuclear family, love, passion, crime, culpability, and morality. Then Kotzia somewhat clumsily inserts his views on vegetarianism in the midst of it all. Why Kotzia needs to explore all of this over three books remains to be seen with the final publication. The School Days of Jesus is not in the league of Life and Times of Michael Kay. Yet I do want to read the final book. What would be interesting? Is for Mr. Kutzia to cross back over the seas, and if he hasn't yet started, to write the final volume here. I suspect he may just find something in himself that he has lost in the utopian Adelaide, and he may just rediscover it in the harsh African soil. Harsh Africans are, and that's it then. Thank you for being with us. All of Book Choice will be podcast on our website www.fmr.co.za. From Mawandi Lobi, the perfect production engineer, and Rick Everett, who so kindly compiled the music and cleverly kept the show on the road, and from me, Gory Bowes Taylor, it's keep cosy with a cool book. Book Choice was proudly brought to you by Wordsworth Books. Hi, I'm Andrew from Wordsworth Books. We have bookshops that are a bit different. We have staff that are a bit different. We love our customers, and we are passionate about our books. From paperbacks at fifty-nine rand to Leonardo da Vinci at two thousand rand, our selection is remarkable, and we sell special stationery as well. Wordsworth, we sell books the old-fashioned way. We read them. F-M-R.